Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Oh, welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with Jonathan Jay. Jonathan is the CEO of Dealmakers Academy, a serial acquisition entrepreneur, and he's joining us from London, England. Thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate you joining us. So let's just kind of jump in. Well, thanks for the invitation, Ron. Looking forward to this. Awesome. You're in London. Funny thing is, just, I guess that the sunlight just broke out because you're lighting on your camera. Just The whole room just lit up. And so I take it's a typical <laughs> cloudy day there. It's chilly. It's cold. It's a typical London day. A little bit miserable, a little bit gray. Yeah. So I'm living right now in what I refer to as the closest thing to paradise I know. I'm in the Redwood Forest of Northern California. So it's cool here. It's 40 degrees this morning. But like there's a misty fog that lays in the valleys in the morning. So you get to drive. A lot of times I'll get up in the morning and drive up the mountain beside here and set above the fog and like look at it like a this like cloud over the whole town here and stuff. I was just seeing the lighting in your room was changing off and on. I was like, okay, it's got to be foggy and the sun's trying to break through there. Let's start off with just kind of getting people to know you a little bit. Let's start anywhere you feel comfortable. Tell us about yourself, kind of how you got started in business. Looks like you started at a young age like myself, but then how did you end up as an acquisition entrepreneur and what do you got going on now? So let's just start there. Yeah, sure. I've been in business a long time. I dropped out of university when I was 19 years old to start a business. I don't think my parents were too happy about that. I only lasted one one term. But even before then, I was I was the guy who went to the school with the idea of running what we call a tuck shop. I'm not sure what the equivalent is, like a sort of a with sort of snacks at the break times. And I was always sort of doing things at the evenings and the weekends that were looking back were probably the start of my sort of entrepreneurial journey. So some pocket money things, Saturday jobs, things that meant that I was always active and always having to earn my own living rather than someone giving it to me. So I think that started an attitude of, I get out of life what I put into it. Mm-hmm. And even now, uh, over 30 years later, I'm still hustling. I'm still working and I enjoy it. And I can't imagine a future where I'm not. The thought of complete retirement and doing nothing fills me with dread. I started telling people three or four months ago that I'd semi-retired and that felt very strange. It's more I've taken a bit of a sabbatical, a bit of a break. So yeah, my interest in business goes way back to when I was at school. Interesting. A couple of years ago, right before COVID hit, I did two years where I was doing this. I was volunteering at a kind of a self-help Tony Robbins type of program where you're kind of learning to deal with your own demons, right? And then we were, I did a two years team, two years of that program was team leadership and team building. Moved to Dallas, was living in the tiny house and I kind of like semi-retired there. Had a lot of real estate and that was paying it. But I realized that I probably am never that guy either. Like 
I had a lot of free time on my hands in that space. And I would go fishing every day and stuff, thinking that this is what I would do when I retire. And within two weeks, I was absolutely miserable. I was like, when COVID hit, my wife's like, you can better go find something else to do. Or she's like, because we were both locked in the house, right? And it's a tiny house, 320 square feet, four of us in here. And she's like, if you don't find a hobby or find something to get busy doing, you're going to go nuts and you're going to drive us all nuts in the process. <laughs> That's kind of the, the start of my journey back mm -hmm. into like in the business, into this acquisition entrepreneur space. So I get that as being a guy who probably be doing something or have my fingers in something until I, I'm pushing up daisies type of guy. I find it enjoyable. I mean, I really do. You're in London, England. I know you travel around a little bit, right? So where have you done deals? Where's it like, what areas do you focus on? Do you do some international deals? You do deals everywhere? Just London? No, no, just here in the UK, we've got millions of, of businesses in the UK. I do see this trend for people wanting to buy businesses in other countries. And I figure that if there's a visa or there's some sort of ulterior motive, then fair enough. Something, if you have to jump on an airplane to go and sort out a problem, that sounds to me like a lot of hassle. And I always say to people, why didn't you buy a business in your own town, your own city? Why buy one thousands of miles away? Not sure if I want, I'd want that sort of hassle in my life, in my life. It's interesting is I was buying stuff. I had a little pest control company and some other stuff in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where we were living. And then we had a little bit of a family emergency and packed up and moved to Northern California. And now I'm looking at this space going, what can I buy and run anywhere? So I'm looking at a lot of online properties and online content type of stuff, just because I love being that digital nomad is with that nickname they've got. Mm -hmm, I love mm -hmm. being able to own things that are generating income, own businesses that are making a difference in the world. Yesterday, I took a two-hour drive up the coast and watched the sunset over the Pacific Ocean with my wife. It was beautiful. Today is our 15-year anniversary. It says, Glad you're spending your anniversary doing a podcast interview. <laughs> I've got two today. <laughs> your priorities like, right. <laughs> like, tomorrow, I was like, well, I'm doing two podcasts and I'm selling some real estate notes. I'm a workaholic. I, like you, you started early in the real estate. I mean, as an entrepreneur, I started the same way. I grew up with a workaholic as a father. His mentality was, you're doing one of two things. Either earning money or spending it. And it's your choice what you're doing with your time during the day. And I get that, right? You either, like even the drive up the coast, we're buying gas, we're buying snacks, we're whatever, right? And if you're not, so I know there's a lot of other things in life, but I still have that childhood memory of my father. Like we're either making money or spending it. We were either fishing on a lake somewhere or painting house. My dad was a painter. We were painting houses, right? It's just part of the this entrepreneurial journey just to want to create and to want to do that. And, and as an acquisition entrepreneur, as the, the creation is like, is a little bit different. So let's talk about, you went from in building businesses and having side gigs and stuff. Now you're acquiring them and folding them together. You got a lot of experience in that space. When did you do your first acquisition? Or was it an exit first? You built something and sold it first? Yes, yeah, 23 years ago. So in 1999, mm -hmm. I owned a magazine publishing business. And we started off publishing one title that expanded to three titles and then i was approached by something that's such a long time ago i can't remember how they found me or how the conversation started could well actually have been one of the magazine subscribers approached me and said we'd be interested in buying the business i was very flattered i did a deal that meant that i made more money the day that i sold the business than I had for the previous two and a half years of owning it. For, so for two and a half years, I made a certain amount of money from operating the business, but turning up every day, thinking about it all the time. I get a bit obsessive with these things. So I think about these things all the time, thinking about it at the weekends, not being able to stop being called a workaholic by everyone. But then the day I sold it, I made more money 
then the previous two and a half years of all that effort put together. That set me thinking. Now, I'm a bit of a slow learner. I need to hear these things several times before it really takes hold in my brain. But that was my introduction to M&A. It was a very good introduction to M&A. Interestingly, I sold the business in the same way that I have subsequently bought a lot of businesses by entering the payments over a period of time. And as the seller of a business in that way, I was very happy with it to the point after two and a half working very hard of getting a little bit, I kind of run out of energy and run out of interest in it. So it was the perfect exit for me. And I had another business that I was sort of starting and that turned into quite a sizable business and I needed free time. The sale of the business taught me about M&A, but also freed up my time to develop another business that actually became a private equity deal a few years later. That's awesome. So you've been doing this for quite a while now. So I'm sure there are like common myths out there about the acquisition entrepreneurship, buying and selling businesses and stuff that you would just, you just don't believe, like you want to debunk. Like what I'm looking for here is things that normal people that are getting into this space think are true but from your experiences just don't necessarily sure. exist. The, the biggest misconception is that you need to be wealthy to buy a business. And when someone comes to me and says, Jonathan, what's your advice? What do you suggest I do? I always say to them, I don't care how much money you've got. I don't think I'm not wealthy. I don't care what sort of, what your savings are. It doesn't make any difference. If you've got knowledge and you've got the skills and you've got the confidence and confidence is very important. Then you can find a business to buy and structure that deal that does not involve the money that you have in the bank. You've got lots in the bank or little in the bank it makes no difference. We can still acquire this business using other people's money rather than our own. And that's the smart way of doing it. Because if we use our run out at some point and no no one wants to run out of money so smarter to use other people's money because those sources never run out which means that you can do more you can do bigger and i have people doing multi-million pound deals as their first acquisition because they're using other people's money i've got so many case studies of that happening so the biggest misconception is that you need to be wealthy to buy a business no you do not I've had people that, I, even in the real estate space, there's all these people. There's no such thing as a no money down deal. And I was like, okay, I ran a real estate investment firm from, I was part of one where I was a partner in one. And then I ended up owning my own from 2008 until 2017. We did hundreds of real estate transactions. And I can count on my fingers not having to remove my socks and use my toes at all. How many times I stroke a check for any single one of those houses, right? It was just, it was a game, right? Game was the seller's always the bank. That's just a phrase we had. And a lot of times that meant when we bought it, we tried to convince the seller to own or finance it. That was the first step. And then when we sold it, we own or financed it because we got interest on our money. So the seller, I was, when I'm buying it, they're the seller. I'm trying to get them to, to finance it if they can. And if not, second option is other people's money, private investors. Who, which one of my friends and family and other people would like to earn the great interest rate that they're not earning anywhere else? I'm doing favors for people. Yeah, and that's so the same thing in this space, right? Yeah. So when I say other people's money, I, I don't 
I mean, people as individuals, different types of lenders, different types of finance. Of course, it can also apply to, to, to money from friends and family. And I've got people who've done that, but usually it's far easier just to go to a lender. And also, I think that you want to preserve your friendships and borrowing from friends and family can sometimes, can, you don't want it to go wrong, do you? Right. The interesting thing about real estate, and I find different in the businesses, real estate is a hard asset. If you're buying it at a discount, it's a fairly safe bet. So almost anybody I can talk to that has cash will loan me money to buy real estate. Business, on the other hand, that investor doesn't have such a hard asset. Now they have to believe in your ability to take that business and not mess it up. Even if, even if it's a business that's just cranking out cash, right? They have to believe if you did nothing, it would just run. So it's yours to screw up, but they have to believe in you enough to loan, to loan you the money, they would have to believe in you enough that you won't mess it up. And a financial institution will look at hard assets and other aspects of that business and mm -hmm. know the risk profile way above and beyond your own like connections. I can get that. I know of a bunch of them. A lot of people say there's no such thing as no money down. I, I hear that a lot now. There's kind of a, a small group of people on the Twitter space and other people that are trying to debunk the whole no money down deals. And I don't think they get it that there's all these different types of financial lending options, factoring yeah, so, invoices. So, so, and so, so, yeah, let's just get some clarity around that phrase, no money down, because I think there's several different interpretations of it, aren't there? And I think the interpretation that some people jump to is that you buy the business and you don't give the seller of the business anything and the seller of the business doesn't get any money. But that isn't the only interpretation of no money down. So a client of mine, his name's Dan, he's just bought his first business and he paid on day one, 10 million pounds, which I think is about $12 million on right. day one. And it's a big, heavy equipment, construction equipment business. So the owner of that business walked away with 10 million pounds, $12 million. But that was actually a no money down deal because Dan didn't have $12 million. That was not his money. <laughs> that was other people's money. So my, no money down deal doesn't mean that, that someone is shortchanged or someone comes out of it badly. It just means that you as the clever, educated, confident business buyer don't have to re refinance your property, go into your savings and raid the piggy bank to find the money. You just do it in a smarter way. I can rattle off some of my top of my head, but was that a single source that was the, the 10 million pounds come from a single source or multiple sources? Multiple. Okay. And I, we probably call them different things here because we use different terminology here than they use in the UK. But what are some of the sources? I like, you know, I'm thinking it's probably yeah. asset loans against the equipment, factoring against Correct. invoices. And Correct as well. Yeah. And cash at bank. Those were the three sources. So there was, yeah. there was four million pounds cash at bank. There was uh, four million pounds of equipment. There's uh, the invoice financing. So you take all those elements together, put them together and you get your deal price. Now I have a friend from my old rotary club here in Oklahoma, back in Oklahoma, who he works for that factoring type of company. I took him out to a, to a pub and fed him a few beers to get information. Cause I just, I was just learning this space and their interest rates are pretty high here in the United States. This is before the interest rate went up when banks were loaning money at three and 4%, he was taking about 18 to 20% on oh. asset. What we call it is a, a sell and lease back. You sell the equipment to the, the leasing company, you lease it back from them. Right. So that where you're like, you're using the hard equipment, all that construction equipment, you would sell it to their company. They would basically, they would technically own it until you pay them back off. 
and you yeah, just leave, so they you have a charge, charge. a charge on it. Yeah, yeah, a lien on it, as I think you say. Sure. Yeah. Is it a high interest rate loan there? Well, interest rates have gone a little bit crazy recently. I've got no idea what the interest rates are today because they were different. <laughs> they were different yesterday, and they'll be different tomorrow. So, some, sometimes the interest rates can feel a little bit high, but if it allows you to do the deal and the cash flow of the business supports the repayments, then you can still do it. And quite frankly, they're not going to give you that money unless the business can support it anyway. And they can be quite prudent and cautious lenders. So the fact that they will lend you the money using those assets as security should give you the confidence that business has sufficient cash flows to, to repay the debt. I actually brought that up for that reason, because in the real estate realm, I always, people would say, how do you pay 12.75% interest on real estate deals? Because we had a hard money lender in town that would loan us money all day long at that. And uh, 12.75 seems high. And I said, like, the deal still makes sense, right? And when I run the numbers, if I don't care what the interest rate is, if I can still cash flow the deal, make money, there's always mm -hmm. the opportunity. I didn't do it as often as I probably should have, but there's always opportunity. I can refinance that debt at a lower interest rate later if needed the deal service the debt and i still made money i did the deal right the numbers worked so to the reason i brought that up is people will get tied up a lot of the other listeners will go i don't want to pay credit card rates on a business i'm buying 19 percent, 18 percent on the equipment loan that's ridiculous and i was like well you know that's just part of the deal right if it still services the debt yeah yeah exactly you might not like it but if you can still make money then what's the problem exactly don't let your personal biases get in the way, I guess, is where I'm going with that one. Yeah, good point. Yeah. So let's go talk about – I love story time. So tell me about – you've been teaching this for a while now. Is that transaction complete? Has he already done the integration? Is he running it now, or is that something recent? Yeah, it took him a long time to get it over the line because there were so many moving parts, and the finance was quite quite chunky. But no, he owns that now and now he's looking for similar businesses it's a lot easier to buy your second third business once you've bought your first because you're no longer a guy with an idea you're someone who actually owns a business in that space which actually means that finance is a more doors are open with finance because you're no longer someone wanting to enter a market you're in the market you own a business in the market you've got finance in the market and now you want to expand your business and actually that's what people get lenders get their head around more easily someone wanting to expand their business than somebody who wants to buy into a new sector and the other business owners you're talking to are a lot more open to the conversation right because i've been on many a calls and we did a marketing roll up it's almost a year ago now we exited or our team exited out of it it's still going on we got bought out of our part portion of it in december of last year but to get the first one was a little under even LOI and everything. We've never owned one. Like I have owned small ones. I'm a, I have a marketing MBA, but like as a group, this was our first time. But after you got the fourth or fifth one and we could show we have these five marketing agencies on board, it was just easier conversation because people wanted to be part of it. They would see that you've got something that's working. So sure. uh, the first one's always the hardest. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about the creative structuring that there is such thing as none of your money down all right what over the years what's been most influential to you where did you learn this from or is there like books that you read or is this just trial and error is there what are you teaching now like i think the topic i want to talk now is somebody wants to get into this space what are the opportunities to learn it learn yeah. this space and learn from other people's mistakes so there are hundreds of books written on M&A and, mm. and my bookshelves behind me, I, I've probably got 
25, 30. They're chunky textbooks. They're more applicable typically to larger deals mm-hmm. where someone who wants to buy a business that, that does just a few million dollars of annual revenue, most of that information isn't going to be relevant and maybe not particularly practical either. And I suppose my earliest education was doing it, (laughs) was actually selling a business, being on the seller end and being very aware of what the buyer was doing and just being very conscious of how the negotiation was going and thinking, oh, that was clever and and kind of storing it up in my head. Then built a business over the next few years and had the opportunity to buy out my main competitor. And this was in the mid 2000s. And my main competitor was, again, a multi-million revenue business, so a sizable business. And they approached me and made the proposition that I should buy them. And that was on a Monday afternoon. I remember it incredibly clearly. And if we fast forward to the Friday of that week, so it's Monday afternoon, so Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, four days later, I owned that business. Wow, that's fast. And when people say that it takes months to buy a business. I said, well, that's someone who doesn't have the process. They don't know really what they're doing. The reason it's taking so long is because they're using trial and error. I knew what I was doing. I had a a good lawyer, very important. There is a trend these days for people to say, you don't need a lawyer to do a deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, (laughs) Now, if you're going to be signing contracts, you need a lawyer. I think that's terrible, terrible guidance. So get yourself a good lawyer, very important. I did the deal in four days. I understood the business that I was buying. That was very helpful. I knew exactly what I was doing. And as a result of that acquisition, I nearly doubled the size of my existing business. And the profitability then went off the chart because we weren't competing with our number one competitor. We now owned our number one competitor. And about less than a year later, just under a year later, I sold the new combined business to a London-based private equity firm in a deal that was pretty life-changing. Financially, it was absolutely incredible. And I still put it down to the fact that we'd grown via acquisition. And part of the business plan going forward was to buy more competitors and then do that internationally. And that's what private equity like to hear. They like to know that there is a growth plan that can happen relatively quickly within a few years. So that particular acquisition followed by the private equity sale, all within a sort of, let's say 12, 13 month period was uh, an incredible on the ground education. That's when I started talking to people about this is what I did and how I did it. I wouldn't say that I was running courses on it. I was just talking to people. I was always invited to be speaking at conferences. So I would go to the conference and I have like my 45 minute keynote and I'd tell people how I did the deal, what I learned and how they could do something similar. And it started to catch on a little bit at that point. I'm at the early stages of that right now. I'm a marketing nerd by previous trade. I'm really good at making the phone ring. So I've got three speaking gigs coming up in the next 12 months on deal sourcing, right? I had to turn my stuff off because I switched from like the marketing agencies and stuff. And just myself and two other individuals on an eight person team were doing the outreach for that. We interviewed over 200 plus marketing agencies in less than 190 days, like one hour call. We sent out messages, hey, we're thinking about investing in or buying marketing agencies. Would you be interested in a call type of messaging? 
to the extent where they said yes, scheduled a one pl- one to one and a half hours worth of calls with us. Mm-hmm. And we did that first conversation with over 200, I think it was 216 or 218, you know, agencies producing over a million bucks. That skill alone, just making the phone ring with people going, yeah, I w- I'd be interested in what you got going on. What are you doing? Has opened the doors where now I'm like showing other people how to source deals. And we did it all online. Mm-hmm. I still do direct mail and some other stuff. And for things that are hard, like my pest control company is hard to reach people for online. You pretty much have to cold call them or send them letters. They just don't hang out on <laughs> LinkedIn and Facebook. The owners don't. So I can see kind of, I don't know that I'll ever run a course on it. I've owned some education centers before. I used to teach real estate investing. love the teaching process, but I don't see myself doing that here. I might buy something that teaches it and make sure it's a quality material. That might, That I might do. But it's a lot of hours to stand in front of classrooms and teach. So I, I should explain that the, the business that I built and bought the competitor and did the private equity sale was actually adult education. That was the sector. So I was very familiar with how adult education works and it was accredited by different, different colleges. So I understand how to create a robust syllabus and how to teach. <laughs> I saw enough expert trainers and teachers to understand how to, because you know, it's not about who knows the most or, or who's the best and anything like that. It's about, if you want to learn something, you want to learn from a teacher who can teach right. and someone who can explain it clearly and break it down and, and get their own ego out of the way and uh, take things back to basics and, and encourage people as well. I mean, people want to be inspired. They want to be motivated. They want to, they want to come out of this, not just buying a business, but actually also being a different person as a result. And Brian Tracy, who I've always been a huge fan of, Canadian speaker, I think I believe lives in San Diego, not not a million miles from where you are, I think. He always said that becoming a millionaire isn't about the money that you make, it's about the person that you become. And you become a different person. You make that first acquisition, you realize that you can do something that all your friends told you that you couldn't do. And then you realize you need to go and get new friends. I love when somebody tells me you can't do something. No, you can't do it. I clearly am on the path to getting this done. Usually when somebody says you can't do something, what they're really saying is they can't do it, right? Yeah, Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They have no idea and they don't believe you can. I was like, okay, I don't run on your belief. I have other fuel and I'll show you when I get it done, right? So it actually fuels me a little bit. I guess I'm the stubborn little kid. Tell me I can't do something. I'll show you three ways it's done. (laughs) Absolutely. I have people all the time saying, yeah, you can't do this. It's not possible. You're expecting too much or you can't grow a business as as big as you're saying you can grow it it's nice to prove people wrong isn't it it is what industries do you avoid is there anything out there you just won't touch yeah things i don't understand and i there's a lot of things i don't understand so anything to do with technology i haven't got a really don't understand anything to do with uh, with technology I, i like service businesses i can walk around a manufacturing business and not really understand what I'm looking at. Service businesses, I can get that. And I understand the mechanics of a service business, where if I look at, I've got clients buying engineering business and manufacturing businesses and trucking businesses and transport businesses. That's just not my thing. So I always say to people, stick with something that you're comfortable with to start off with, and then you can go outside your comfort zone later. But at the beginning, get your experience doing something that you feel comfortable with. Otherwise, you'll be outside your comfort zone on the acquisition and outside your comfort zone on the business. I mean, that could be too much for anyone to so do it one step at a time. I get that. I stick away from, like, I just moved from Oklahoma and there are, there's legalized marijuana in Oklahoma. 
I don't touch stuff. Anything that's so high risk that it can impact other businesses. Like when I was in the marketing, people are constantly contacting, hey, would you buy this grow facility or whatever? And I'm just not interested in it. I believe it has medical properties. I'm glad that they're allowing people to use that and deal with it. I have a bunch of friends from the military that have PTSD and certain things that, you know, that they do that helps them get past that stuff. That's fine. But any, I stay away from anything that's really highly regulated. And I say that I own a pest control company, which is one of the highest regulated things. That's one of the reasons I don't want to do anything that's highly regulated is I bought one and now I'm dealing with constantly licensing and testing and all the stuff that goes with something highly regulated. What do you think about stuff like that? Like service well, industries that are highly regulated? I, I have a client in, in pest control and he's bought three pest control businesses. And I saw him two weeks ago and it was at a dinner. And he leant across the table and he said, someone's offered me 15 million pounds. What's that? $18 million for my business. Do you think I should say yes? And it's like, yes, <laughs> say yes, say yes. You'll be in a non-compete for two to three years and then you could do it all over again. But take some, I'm big into people taking money off the table. If you can de-risk as you go along, yeah. waiting for the big payday might never happen. De-risk as you go along. We need less money than we think we need. And a few million dollars can be absolutely life-changing. It doesn't have to be a hundred million dollars every time. It can be three million dollars there, seven million dollars there. Yeah, do it, do it in stages, incremental stages. But answering your question about the highly regulated, my last sector was childcare. And you can't get again more highly regulated than being responsible for people's children. And it was a nightmare. It was every morning you I lived in fear of the regulatory body doing an unannounced visit and by half past four in the afternoon they could have closed down that location if they saw something they didn't like and so very very living on the edge all the time of, of the regulatory body coming down on you and closing one of your facilities so I've been there would I do it again yeah I would actually but I think you need to know what you're getting into when, it, when you're getting into a regulated industry. I get it. The one thing about the regulated industry is the operators themselves have to be top notch and understand that regulator, that regulation day in and day out, right? They got to eat it, sleep it, live it. They got to, they just have to understand it. So like when we're looking at acquiring other pest control companies, that's how I'm going to grow that one. We've talked to a few already. Problem is some of them are old school. They existed before the EPA really got on to it. And here in the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency really kind of oversees and local government actually, there's two parties you got to watch out for. There's EPA regulations on the chemicals you use and there's local guidances on stuff. And if you don't pay attention to that, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. What I'm finding is a lot of these old school guys, these guys are 60 plus ready to retire. They kind of took it very relaxed level and i'm concerned with the liabilities that they have laying around right so it's the part of my due diligence is like do they have the records they're supposed to have do they handle the chemicals the way they're supposed to handle them are there people well trained and safe right are there any pending lawsuits how many of their staff have worker comp claims because they spilt chemicals on themselves and mm -hmm, are really mm -hmm. sick now because that stuff can be bad so there's something i get it and what would i do it again I don't know yet. I'm still in the middle of one. This stage, I'm frustrated enough to say I probably would stay away from the highly regulated stuff. And I definitely would stay away from the childcare side of it just because of, you know, here, the United States is so sue happy. The kid does something stupid, gets hurt. They're going to sue the company. Yeah, sure, and, sure. Yeah. It's the same here, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So 
I know a little bit about that childcare roll up and stuff. And you grew really fast. You grew really fast in the middle of COVID, right? And mm -hmm. there were some difficulties inside. Do you mind sharing some lessons learned from that? Because I think that's really valuable for people to learn yeah, from sure. other people's mistakes instead of doing them themselves. Yeah, sure. We did a lot right. We went from zero to the fourth largest group in the sector. And the sector is dominated in the UK, as I'm sure it is in most countries, by private equity backed. The two largest groups in the sector listed on the New York, one's listed on the New York Stock Exchange. One's owned by the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, which is a huge investment fund. The third largest group is owned by a European private equity fund. And then there was us. We reached scale very, very quickly, but it was, yeah, it was challenging. And with the benefit of hindsight, we grew way too quickly, way, way too fast. And we didn't have the head office infrastructure that we needed. We were constantly playing catch up. Imagine doing 48 deals in two and a half years, different parts of the UK, mostly in the north of England, spread out a little bit. I live in London, so I'm three, 400 miles away from everything. So that was that distance created a few challenges. My role always was intended to be just the person doing the deals. But because we had weaknesses in the management structure, I was dragged in to plug the gap in management. And it's not, I have, don't have the qualifications in childcare. I don't have the background. And quite frankly, I didn't have the desire. I didn't have the desire to be involved in a business day to day. And it was stressful with again, went from zero to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of staff. And even though there were several layers of management between the staff and me, I'd still be hearing every day about, because every day there'd be resignations, every day there'd be firings, every day there'd be hints and grievances and all those HR things. And I'm terrible with things like that. I mean, I, oh, that just drives me crazy. I'm not really a people person to the extent of wanting to sit down and talk to hundreds of stuff. So yeah, really, really changing. And I think probably I thought I had more energy than I actually had. I'm 51 years old now. And yeah, I think I, it started to catch up with me physically and mentally. I can get it. And yeah. I'll be 51 uh, in February. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're in the same, we're the same age. age. Yeah. And actually I ended up in hospital, put me in hospital. I had to have a colonoscopy. Mm. My stomach pains were, I couldn't sleep for the stomach pains. I was, uh, I couldn't stand up straight. It, they lasted for days and the colonoscopy was obviously looking for the sort of more sinister, um, reasons. Unfortunately, very fortunately that wasn't the case. And the conclusion was it was stress. <laughs> and I thought this isn't good because I always enjoyed being the guy who could take on anything. Stress didn't bother me. But when I started thinking about it, I realized that I've been taking sleeping tablets every night for two years. And apparently that's not a good thing because my mind was so active and I, I couldn't sleep. And then yeah, I went to see a therapist and I was a little embarrassed about it. Well, actually I didn't admit it at the time. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my business partner. I didn't tell anyone. It was, I kind of went off eight o'clock in the evening, went off for an hour, came back. I didn't want to say where I'd been. It all looked very right. suspicious. But yeah, and I realized I had to make some life decisions. We were on a three to five year journey and I decided that I was going to get off that journey before the end. Money is appealing. If you're in business, it's kind of like your measure of success, isn't it? I've got a six and a half year old daughter 
And when she bought her spelling test home from work, from work but listen to me at home from school <laughs> mm-hmm. can you see the problem i got here when she brought her spelling test home from school and she was going through her spellings and one of the words was unhappy and she looked at me and she said that's you <laughs> and that, that took me by surprise the next day i said to her what did you mean why do you think why do you say i'm unhappy i said what makes me unhappy and she said work and I thought, well, this is, I've suddenly become a terrible role model for my daughter where I'm, where she considers that work is making me unhappy. Yeah. So I thought that was the time. No, no amount of money is worth damaging your health and damaging the relationship that you have with your children. We're very similar. We're both 50. I'm 50. We're going to be 51. You're 51. You have a six and a half year old daughter. I have a daughter who's going to be seven and just two days after, three days after Christmas. Oh, right. Okay. So we're, I have an 11 year old boy too. So I have an 11 year old and a six year old. It'll be 12 and seven, one day apart. So they're the 26th and 27th or 27th and 28th of December. Anyway, it's brilliant how little kids can have insight into things. Mm-hmm. And oh, yes. see things yeah. and just call you out on things that you would just never do on your own, right? You would just, so I'm glad, I'm not glad you went through it, but I'm glad you had the realization that it just wasn't working. It wasn't working for your health. It wasn't well, working I mean, for your yeah, stress. I mean, we kind of, we got addicted to doing deals. And during mm-hmm. the pandemic, there were so many opportunities. We looked at 500 opportunities and did sort of like roughly 10% of those. And we could have done more. We could have done a lot more. We just did not have the bandwidth to do it. And private equity does get it right when they create the management team and invest in that head office team before making acquisition number one. And they have deep enough pockets to be able to spend a year putting together the team, developing the management team, developing the thesis before they make that first acquisition. We were running at a pace where... Uh, my business partner who stayed with the business, my business partner would be talking about a particular location and I'd be looking at her and I'm thinking, I have no idea right now, which one she's talking about, whether we own it or whether we're going to buy it. And I think I, I realized I was starting to just lose track of what was going on, but I'm very proud of what we did. We created the fourth largest group in the sector in in two and a half years and no one's ever done anything of that scale before okay so here's a question for you i'm gonna put a scenario gun to your head you have to do it again right don't have a choice right Mm -hmm. you have Mm -hmm. to do this again what would you do different what lessons would you like and you're starting over you're not like you're not going back into what you've already done but you got to go down that same path again what would you do differently what are the lessons learned and what would you do differently from day one to make it less stressful on you and make it work yeah, sure. The slight downside of this childcare sector is that they're all small businesses. What I say to, to everyone that I assist on their business buying journey is the temptation might be to go and buy a small business that sort of does a few hundred thousand dollars of revenue. I say, no, go for something larger, go for something more substantial with management in place, with good, so- strong, solid cash flows. Some people say buy a distressed business for a dollar, turn it around. I've done that and I've done it. I'm very happy to give you a, tell you a story of one that I did very, very successfully, but it requires a little bit of luck to be on your side as well. I say to people, don't do the $1 deal. 
Don't buy the distressed business. Don't try and turn a business around. That's hard work. Buy a business that's already making money and will make money when the seller goes, when they exit. And buy a business that from day one, money is flowing into the business and then flowing into your personal bank account. That's what you should be doing. So looking back on the, the group, we had those solid profitable businesses and we also had some turnarounds so with the benefit of hindsight i never would have done the turnarounds i would have just so i had a smaller portfolio mm -hmm. but ultimately a more profitable portfolio because the loss making ones drain the profit from the profitable ones you know, every everyone I, th I think turnarounds are a little bit ego driven and again i could i've done this myself so I know how much ego gets involved in this. I bought a business from a London-based private equity firm with a reputation for being ruthless. I mean, these guys, you mention their name and everyone goes, oh, oh, how did that deal work? And they had a digital marketing. You mentioned marketing earlier. They had a digital mm -hmm. marketing business that they bought as part of a buy and build. And they... The intention was that this was the platform investment. They'd buy other businesses in the sector and then sell it on. That was their method of operation. They've been very, very successful for many decades in doing buy and builds. And they hadn't ever bought another business in this sector. They just bought this initial platform and never done anything with it. And I still to this day don't know why. But this business had languished in their portfolio for a number of years. And then I was in the right place at the right time and had the opportunity to buy that business for a dollar. And it was roughly in dollars, about $7 million of annual revenue. I could buy it for a dollar, but it was making a loss. And I always say to people, never buy a business that's making a loss unless you know the answer to two questions. The first is why it's making a loss. And secondly, how to fix the problem. And I knew the answer to both questions. So I bought the business for a dollar. I spent six months making it profitable. And that actually was an interesting approach. I effectively shrunk the business. I made the business smaller by stopping the activities that were loss-making and leaving behind the activities that were profitable. And I spent six months doing that and then about three months finding a buyer for it. And I did it as a trade sale. So I sold it to a effectively to a competitor in the same sector. And I sold it for, again, putting this into dollars, roughly $2 million. Right. And there was a, there was some skill involved in that, but also there was a little bit of luck. And can someone do that as their first deal? I think the chances are so unlikely that you might as well not even bother. Buy a solid, profitable business that makes you money from day one. Don't gamble it all on a turnaround. That's that that is my best advice, I think, to people who are thinking of buying a business for the first time. How early in the process do you start talking about or thinking in your own mind about how it's going to be exited? Like, do you know from day one it's going to be a trade or what we call a strategic purchase? You're going to sell this to somebody in the industry, a competitor. You're going to sell it to private equity. Do you buy things with like, okay, I know private equity company over here is buying these. And if I buy this through X, Y, and Z to it, they're going to want it. Or does that come later in the process? You're just looking for something very profitable. You're going to run it and you start thinking about who the acquirer is on the other end at a later time. Yeah. So there's two approaches. You could either buy it for the cash flow and you say, yeah. So for example, I've got a, I've got a client who's about to close on a, uh, a lighting company 
and it's got into the final week before they closed the deal. And it's very tense at the moment. We were at 6 a.m. this morning. We were messaging on LinkedIn. We say, what do I do with this? And how do uh, give me a second opinion on this? And that's going to create for them 80, again, putting it into dollars, $100,000 of free cash flow every single month. And that is their focus. It's a father and son buying this business. And their focus is that cash flow. And I think for most people, that level of cash flow is life-changing. The sale of that business in the future is secondary and it will come because you can always sell a good, mm -hmm. solid, profitable business. Other people take a different approach. They say, I know that, for example, in the dental sector, these private equity firms are buying. They're buying at this multiple. If I can buy dental practices, at a, I don't know what they'd be in the US, but let's say at a four or five or six times multiple know that I can sell for 12 times, I can more than double my money. So it's a very strategic play to say, I buy at one price, I sell at another, let's buy as quickly as possible, consolidate, make as many cost savings as possible to make it as profitable as possible without making it run on thin air. I mean, it still has to be a sustainable business. And then I can sell that to these buyers. And if I can get a couple of them interested, I can run a competitive scenario, which always gets you the very best price. It really depends what you want to do. To the first time buyer, I say buy for cash flow. To the more experienced business buyer, I say let's put together an acquisition strategy that allows you to exit for a life-changing amount of money in the future. So it's different strategies for different people at different stages in the journey. I got it. So in here, I know a couple of guys trying to do the dental roll-up. They I know somebody who started one and then they let go of it. They sold the ones they acquired. But I know somebody else that's trying to do it. A lot of professions here, like dental, medical, veterinarian services, you as an individual cannot own them, but you, there's ways around that, right? So for, for anybody that hears this, like, man, maybe that dental thing's not a bad idea. Understand that if you're not a dentist, you can't buy a dental a company here in the United States, but you can set up what's called a DSO, a dental service organization. And there's a way around it. You can acquire dental offices into the dental service organization and sell them as a package. But there's all kinds of regulations about the medical professional being on his own, being able to make his own medical diagnosis. And you can't have any control over what they, you know, what diagnosis they give, what prescriptions they write. There's just, there's a lot of rules around it here. And because uh, mm -hmm. I looked and getting in the middle of that one is like, that's like highly regulated. Like I actually had one of our, one of the people that I talked to on a regular basis, she came to me and said, I have investors wanting us to do a veterinarian roll-up. And to, we'd have to set up a medical service organization in every single state that we were acquiring these veterinarian services in. And I just, when they heard the, which is about here, it's about, I want to say from my research, it looked like it was going to be about 18 or $20,000 worth of legal fees per state to set up the MSO and to, and then so much per month to manage that MSO while we're acquiring them. When the investors heard that, <laughs> before we even start buying the first one, we need to do X, Y, and Z. They weren't as interested in. The reason I bring that up is like anybody that looks into it and it's like, well, you can't do that here. You can. There's a way of, for everything there is, there's a way around it, 
right? The sure. only one I, the only one I haven't figured out is when I owned my real estate investment firm, I actually wanted to buy a law firm. We were spending so much money on attorneys anyway. So you can't legally, at least in the state of Oklahoma and many other states too, you can't own a law firm if you're not an attorney. You can't participate in getting any revenue for legal services unless you're an attorney. And there's no legal service organization, right? There's no way, there was nothing you could, at least in that state, there was nothing around it. So there are a few that you basically have to have that license, that certification to even be part of. But most of the others, you can build something around it and play within the rules that are there and make them work for you. Yeah. There's a, and this is, this is why lawyers are worth their weight in gold. We might not like paying lawyers, but uh, yeah, it, it's important to do things correctly. It's funny to tease and say I'm grooming one. I have a good friend that's into the acquisition entrepreneur space. He's been with me on this journey. We talk probably two or three times a week. He's been going through law school. He takes the bar in February. And then I plan on using him and his services as part of what we're doing, just because he's learned everything I learned, I've been sharing. All right. I'm a big fan of that, that having like legal representation, look at everything. Mm -hmm. um, here, it's a little different. I don't know what it's like in, in London, but every state here has its own state bar. So if you buy something in, I'm in uh, California. So if I buy something here, I have to have a California bar, a licensed attorney look at it because the sure. the contracts and stuff are different. Well, well, to put it into context, the UK is smaller than Texas. So we've <laughs> only got, so we've only got one legal system. <laughs> That's actually not strictly true. We have a different legal system for Scotland, okay. uh, but yeah, generally speaking, we have one simple system. So here we, if you're going to do a roll up across multiple states, you pretty much need an attorney. Some, there is some across, like you can pass the bar in one state and then actually get licensed in another state through, there's a, I forgot what it's called, a reciprocity type of, there's states that are reciprocal in licensing and bars and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So they can, you file a fee, you pass maybe a test or you get some certification and proof, and now you can practice law in their state also. But understand that here in the United States, chances are you're going to need like if you're buying companies in Oklahoma, Texas, California, you're going to need three different attorneys or at least an attorney that's got bar association fees paid in all three states. Okay. We over complex things. Everything here is the lawyers. I think the lawyers built this country, so they made it work for them. Every one of our politicians, if you look at the background, almost every politician we have has passed the bar, right? They were an attorney at some point or another, right? Okay. Almost every, every president, almost every one of them, they went to law school. They made the rules and therefore... You need one if you're going to be in the business space. Let's dive in. We're about 56 minutes in. Let's make sure we cover the, like, how do people work with you, right? If somebody wants to learn from you, work with you, show a deal to you and get your opinion on it, is there a way for them to do that? Yeah, I'm very happy for people to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm quite active on LinkedIn. That's really the only social media platform that I'm, act I'm active on. And I run lots of very low cost introductory Zoom trainings. I do those every couple of weeks, in fact. And it means because it's on Zoom, you can join from anywhere in the world. It's just a few hundred dollars to join one of those classes. And I do it over several a period of several days. So if you, I found that if you do it all in one day, it kind of gets a bit overwhelming. But if you spread it over several days, and again, it's all about quality of teaching. It's all about making sure that people really come out of that training with the essential knowledge that they need and also a confidence boost to be able to go out and buy a business. And some people stop there. They just do that training. And then some people come onto my 12 month program, which again, you can join from anywhere in the world where every, every two weeks I'm with you on a zoom training you in the next stage of the process. We found that very, very 
effective indeed, which is why we have so many successful clients. And they're from all over the world. I mean, we have people a lot from Australia at the moment, Australia and New Zealand, a lot from the UK, as you would expect, because I'm based in the UK and a growing number from the United States as well. We're very easy to work with, very easy to connect to. So LinkedIn is a great place to find me. And that academy is the dealmakers with an S academy.com, right? Yeah. So you can go to the website, thedealmakersacademy.com, and that's got sort of the upcoming courses there. There's a newsletter you can subscribe to, the usual thing. Yeah. You even, you have your free download book and everything. I was on it earlier today. Let's cover the, what if, let's do the, the takeaways, right? If somebody can remember only two or three things from the show today, what would you want them to remember? It makes no difference how much or how little money you've got. You can buy a business. It's about having the knowledge, the confidence and the skills, obviously. You can't do it without those things, but it doesn't require money. And if you're willing to put in the effort and it does require effort, then you can acquire a business. The second takeaway is that your first deal and maybe your first few deals should be solid, profitable businesses. Don't get this idea out of your head of doing a $1 deal and buying a distressed business and turning it around. The chances are it won't work. So you need to buy a solid, profitable business that will make money for you from day one. You want to be able to take money out of the business, not put money into the business to keep it afloat. That's the wrong way around. So there's two takeaways. And the third takeaway is that I think everything in life is requires persistence and to keep at it. I think too many people give up on too many things too easily, but the rewards are there for the people who persist. And it's easier to persist when you have got people around you, motivating you, inspiring you. So get around the right people. I mean, there's a saying, isn't there, that you are the average of your five closest friends. And if your five closest friends aren't buying businesses or not in business, the chances of success start to stack against you. So get around a community. And we've got a LinkedIn, a private LinkedIn group of people who've been on our mastermind program, over 500 people in that group. That mm -hmm. is the right place to hang out where you can actually talk to people about the challenges and the concerns in your mind. They'll build you up rather than trying to drag you down. So those are my takeaways, Ron. I got it. I stopped telling my friends and family what I do just because they like, they just don't understand it. And anybody who's not contributing to your goals is distracting you from them. So yeah. I, I just do my best not to bring it up, right? If somebody's not on board and wanting to be part of what I'm doing, that's cool. That's I like, I'm not fueled. I'm not fueled by your, uh, your desires. I'm fueled, fueled by mine. So I want to appreciate you. I want to uh, thank you for being on the show. I appreciate you being here today. We'll just call that a show because it was great and hang out for a few seconds after we're done. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A to decision makers who are ready to buy. 
For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in napoleon's hill's famous book think and grow rich with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T-I-E-P-M.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.